Amen. Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10. I'm not going to ask you for a show of hands or confession if you have trouble with the short books of the Bible that end with I-A-N-S. If you get those jumbled up, I'll just confess to you that a long time ago, somebody taught me the acronym, Go Eat Popcorn. G-E-P-C, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. And I will admit to you that if you tell me Bible drill, open your Bible to one of those books, I cannot do it without thinking, go eat popcorn. So maybe that's helpful. We are in Go, Galatians. And some of you have been looking at the notes, and you've been looking at your New Testament reading schedule, and you are upset that I am not on schedule. And so I will confess to you that I am bending. I don't feel like I'm breaking, but I am bending the rule a little bit on Wednesday night. Our window this week is actually Galatians 4 to Ephesians 2. On Sunday, we're going to look at Galatians 5. We're going to talk about what it means to walk by the Spirit. But tonight, I actually want to go backwards to Galatians chapter 1. I think that's fair. We skipped the whole summer, so we'll just go backwards one week and talk about uh, Galatians chapter 1. So let's start off with a few things about the book of Galatians before we jump in. I have a quote to share with you from James Montgomery Boyce. He is now uh, in heaven. He was the longtime pastor of the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, and he said this about the book of Galatians. Galatians has been called the Magna Carta of Christian liberty. And this is quite correct, for it rightly maintains that only through the grace of God in Jesus Christ is a person enabled to escape the curse of his sin and of the law and to live a new life. Because of this powerful truth, Galatians was the cornerstone of the Protestant Reformation. And picking up on that theme of the Protestant Reformation, I'll just share with you an anecdote from the life of Martin Luther. He's always quotable. He's always a bit funny. He liked to say that he was doubly married. He was married to Catherine von Bora, his wife, and he was married to the book of Galatians. He loved this book. This was one of the books that God used to open his eyes to the truth that justification could only be obtained through faith alone in Jesus, not by any good thing that he or anyone else or the church might be able to do, but justification was by faith alone. Around 50 AD, Paul and his co-workers sent this letter to the churches in the region of Galatia to address a form of legalism that said Gentile converts had to keep the Mosaic law. We'll talk about this more in just a minute, but let me just say briefly, these teachers, false teachers who came behind Paul were known as Judaizers. And essentially, they came behind Paul to this region of Galatia. You know that this letter, or you'll notice that this letter is written not to the church in Galatia, but to the churches of Galatia. Galatia was a region. It would be like saying, I'm sending a letter to the churches of the Permian Basin. And Paul wrote this letter because these Judaizers had come in behind him and said, Jesus is great. We're so glad that Paul told you about Jesus. We just want to make sure that you know 
if you want to be a good Christian, if you want to be a real Christian, you not only have to trust in Jesus, but you have to keep the entirety of the Old Testament law. That means the dietary law, the cleanliness code, that means circumcision, all of the things contained in the Old Testament law. Hang on to Jesus and keep all the things in the law. Paul's responding to that teaching in this letter. So here's the big idea. It's very simple. There is one and only one gospel that saves. That's what Paul's driving home in this beginning paragraph, verse 6 to verse 10. There is one and only one gospel that saves. Recently, I've read a book titled, The Gospel According to Satan. And in this book, the author, who is a Christian, talks about some of the ways that we pervert the gospel and come up with other gospels that may or may not be biblical in any way, shape, or form. And he talks about this quote-unquote gospel that was floating around Galatia, the idea that you needed Jesus plus your obedience if you wanted to be in God's good graces. In the book, the author talks about the quote-unquote gospel that God just wants you to be happy. That's a gospel that you will hear people talk about. They talk about God. We believe in God. They believe in God. And they will say to you, God just wants you to be happy. So do whatever makes you happy. He talks about the gospel that you are to live your own truth. You are to decide what you think is true, and then you are to try to live that out as best you can. He talks about the gospel of following your own heart. This is the gospel according to Disney. Look inside your heart, find whatever's there, and you just try to live it out. He talks about the gospel of God helping those who helps themselves. That's a version of what the the Judaizers were teaching in Galatia. Jesus is good. God is good. You need Jesus. You need to believe in God. You also need to pull yourselves up by your spiritual bootstraps and keep all of these Old Testament laws if you want God to love you. There are lots of gospels out there, lots of ideas about how a person can be saved. What Paul's saying in this paragraph is that there is one and only one gospel that has the power to save your soul. So, turn with me to the Scripture, Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. The Bible says this, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and they want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this book, this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Galatia or the churches in Galatia. Father, open our eyes to see the beauty, the uniqueness of the gospel tonight. 
We pray that it would shape us and change us and sustain us. Lord, we pray for those who are here who have never trusted in Jesus, and we pray that the gospel would save them this evening, that you, through the good news of the gospel of Jesus proclaimed, would save sinners. Father, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to talk about World War II just for a minute. One of the things you see in World War II is that war sometimes results in interesting alliances. And so there were a lot of parties involved in World War II, but we'll just sort of think about the basic major players. You had the Allied powers and the Axis powers. The Allies were led by the United States and Russia and Great Britain, and the French would be deeply offended that we did not put their flag up there on the screen, but that's okay. We don't mind offending the French every now and then. The Axis powers, you see Japan, and you see Hitler in Germany in the middle, and you see Italy and Mussolini over on the the Axis side. And these were the two sides duking it out, fighting in World War II. The interesting thing is that amongst the Allied powers, you had an alliance between capitalist nations like the United States and Great Britain and a communist nation like Russia. And this was an interesting team-up of nations and worldviews and people who really agreed on absolutely nothing other than the fact that Germany was a tremendous threat and had to be dealt with. And so they allied together and they fought together and they sided with each other and they won World War II and then the hostilities between the communist and capitalist nations resumed literally immediately because in the aftermath of the war, The Allied powers had to decide, what are we going to do with Germany? We have destroyed this place. So what are we going to do to rebuild this nation that has been completely ravaged by war? And essentially, they just chopped the nation in half, and they chopped Berlin in half. And they said, okay, the Western nations, the capitalist nations, can have West Germany and West Berlin, and the Soviet Union, Russia, will take... East Germany and East Berlin, and we'll just divide it in half. And you run part and we'll run part and we'll just sort of see how it all goes. And it all went very predictably. In the West, there was remarkable progress. Things were rebuilt, economies started growing, people enjoyed freedom, life was pretty good, all things considered. In the East, life was absolutely Miserable. That's true for East Germany as well as for East Berlin. And it didn't take long for the East Germans and the East Berliners to realize it's a lot better over there. Like it's obvious. Everyone can see it. There's no doubting. There's no question. There's no denying it. And they just sort of looked at each other and said, why are we here? Let's go over there. So they started going. This is where walls come in. Maybe you've heard the adage, capitalist nations build walls to keep people out Communist countries build walls to keep people in. They could not handle this hemorrhaging of people going to the West. And so they put walls up and they put barriers up and they put military checkpoints up. They tried everything they could do to stop this flood of people moving from East to West. They killed many people. They imprisoned many people. But at times, they just couldn't stop the flow of humanity wanting to be free. So one German, East German prime minister, at one point in this process came up with a policy. 
just trying to save face. He couldn't kill all of the people trying to go west. He couldn't imprison all the people trying to go west. So he said, we've got to save face. This looks terrible for us, so this is what we're going to do. We're going to go up. We're going to round up the dissenters, people that we think are likely to try to go west. And we are going to secretly present them with immigration papers to the west. And we're just going to tell them, you have a choice. Right now, you can go to the west or you can go to prison. Which one would you like to do? What do you think most of those people chose? The west. Freedom. It was an easy decision for the people who were fortunate enough not to be killed, not to be thrown in a a prison of some sort, but to be given this secret chance The East Germans are trying to save face, just saying, just go and go quietly and don't talk about it and don't ever come back. Just leave and go. And many of them went. They chose freedom. A similar choice was made by the people in the region of Galatia. A man came to town and he started preaching. His name was Paul. Paul said, there is a God in heaven. And he has given a law. No other gods before me. No idols. Do not use my name in vain. Keep the Sabbath day holy. Worship God. Honor your father and mother. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not lie. Do not covet. And you've broken his law. All of you have broken his law. You're sinners. However, Paul went on to say, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born of a virgin, born under the law, born to keep the law, and ultimately born to die for people who were lawbreakers. And he set this choice before the people in Galatia. You can remain a slave to sin and death. You can remain a slave. He talks about this later in the book to the worldview and to the demonic powers that control you, or you can be free. You can put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Your sins will be forgiven. You will no longer be enslaved to those who by nature are not gods. You will no longer be enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. You will no longer be a slave to sin and death. You can be free. And he set this choice before them. In the book of Galatians, the letter of Galatians written to these churches is evidence that many of them obviously said, we'll choose freedom. Thank you. I would rather not be a slave to sin and death. I would like freedom in the Lord Jesus Christ. And those people were gathered up into churches. Paul left. Then came the Judaizers. Very subtle. Very sneaky. They said, hey, have you guys heard about Jesus? Yes. We have freedom in Jesus. They said, that is wonderful. We Love Jesus. Nothing disarms Christian people like someone looking you in the eye telling you they love Jesus. Immediately you say, oh, this person's on my team. This is wonderful. We love Jesus. Did Paul mention that you're supposed to keep all of the Old Testament rules? Don't stop loving Jesus, but you do know you've got to do all of these things in order for God to love you, in order for you to be in a right relationship with God. And the shocking thing is that the churches in the region of Galatia were beginning to buy into this lie. And somebody sent Paul word and said, hey, there's trouble. 
in Galatia. The Judaizers have come behind you and the the churches are sliding back into a works-based view of salvation. And Paul wrote this letter, which is the sternest letter he wrote to any church. The only letter where he didn't say anything nice at the beginning. Even to the church in Corinth, the most dysfunctional, pathetic, crazy bunch of Christians you have ever heard of, he said nice things. But to the churches in the region of Galatia, nothing nice. It's a very stern letter, and this passage is the beginning of that letter. So let's just walk through the passage. I want you to see seven truths in Galatians 1, 6 to 10, and then we'll try to apply uh, these truths to our lives. Here's the first truth I want you to be aware of. Paul was astonished at what happened in Galatia. He says that in verse 6, I am astonished. We just sang, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. Amazed that he would love me, a sinner condemned unclean. It's an amazing thing. Paul said, I'm astonished. I'm amazed that you are deserting the one who called you in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you speak the Queen's English and you live on the other side of the pond, you might say, I'm gobsmacked. G-O-B, not G-O-D. Gobsmacked. This is your gob. And when you're astonished, you do this. You smack your gob. Okay? That might be a, a loose translation in the Queen's English. Paul's saying, I am shocked, I am astonished, I am amazed, I am gobsmacked about what's happening. I can't believe it. What can he believe? Truth number two, the Galatians were deserting the truth of the gospel. Verse six, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and you're turning to a different gospel. That word deserting is a strong word in Greek. It was the actual word you would use to describe a soldier who found himself on the front lines of a battle and got so scared at the enemy in front of him that he ran away. He didn't just run away and hide, but he ran away and joined the enemy. He's a deserter. Many ancient documents use this word deserting to talk about politicians. Talking about politicians, Roman politicians, who would stand up in front of one crowd and they would say one thing. You may find this hard to believe. Then they would stand in front of another crowd and say another thing. And the term was used to say, you have deserted the truth. Because you said what was true here, but then to tickle ears and to get votes and to find approval, you said something different over on this side. You thought Americans invented that. The Romans were doing that long before we ever did it. Politicians speaking out of both sides of their mouths, deserting the truth. Paul says, I'm astonished that you are deserting the truth of the gospel. Thirdly, 
Paul says God had called these Christians in the grace of Christ. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. This is a good point for a, a quick hermeneutics lesson, Bible interpretation lesson. There's places in the New Testament that use this word call to talk about what a human preacher does when he stands in front of God's people and he calls them to repentance and faith. Hopefully that happens every time we gather together. Hopefully that happens in your Bible study classes. Somebody stands up and they call you to repent of your sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's what theologians would call the external call of the gospel. I can do that. I can issue an external call to you. I can look you in the eye and I can say, God is holy and you're a sinner. Jesus died for you and you need to repent of your sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ today and you can be saved. It's the external call of the gospel. Do you know what I can't do? I can't issue what theologians call the internal call of the gospel. Only God can do that. Only God can reach in, remove your heart of stone, and give you a heart of flesh. Only God can open the eyes of sinners who have been blinded by the God of this world so that they might see the glory of the gospel of Christ, 2 Corinthians 4. Only God, think of Paul preaching to Lydia in Philippi, only God can open Lydia's heart to pay attention to what Paul was saying. Paul could stand there and preach, it's the external call, but only God can issue the internal call. That stirring in your heart, theologians describe it as an effective call an irresistible call. When God calls a sinner to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, it's like the Lord Jesus standing outside of Lazarus's grave saying, Lazarus, come out. Was there any chance that he wasn't coming out? Zero chance. The Lord Jesus called him out and he came out. When God sent his spirit over the valley of dry bones that Ezekiel saw in a vision. Was there any chance that those bones would say, we kind of like being dry and dusty. We'll just stay right here. No, there was no chance. God's call is effective. It's effectual. God had called these people in the grace of Christ. Tragically, this is the next truth, the Galatians had turned, or you could say they were turning, to a different gospel, and that different gospel was not good news. Verse 6, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Paul says this whole thing has happened very quickly. We don't know the exact timeline, but it might have just been a matter of months since Paul had been there. You understand, we see the same thing happen today. We see people at Emmanuel. Churches in Odessa see the same thing in their churches. People come, they make a decision for Christ. They say, God's at work in my life. You wake up a month later and you say, where are these people? Well, they have so quickly deserted the one who called them. We call them back. Paul is calling them back. I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. You're turning 
to a different gospel. Look what he says in verse 7. Not that there is another one. Yes, there are other, air quotes, gospels. But they don't save. They're not really good news. They're just cheap, phony, imitation knockoffs. I've told you before that me and my wife are not opposed to buying generic products. When we lived in Kentucky, we shopped at Kroger. I don't know if you've ever shopped at a Kroger. I don't know if it's still the way now that it was when we used to shop at Kroger. But when we used to shop at Kroger in Frankfurt and in Louisville, Kroger had a double generic brand. Okay? You could go and you could buy the name brand. And then next to it was Kroger brand. And then next to it was no brand. Most expensive, less expensive, less expensive. We had no problem buying the least expensive product sometimes. You don't buy the least expensive peanut butter. And some of you have argued with me about this, and I'm saying it again to just browbeat you over the head, to use the bully pulpit, and to say to you, you only buy Jif. That's it. It can be organic Jif, it can be crunchy Jif, it can be creamy Jif. I don't care what kind of Jif you get, but it's only Jif. Now, we had a crisis in our house over the last couple weeks. We shop at Market Street. Market Street hadn't had any Jif. And my wife, my wife, went to the grocery store, and she had the audacity to come home with a jar of something called Peter Pan. No one has touched it. It's just sitting in the pantry. It'll sit there for five, six, seven, eight years, and somebody will say, look at the date on this thing. Get rid of this junk. Throw it out. It's a cheap imitation knockoff. It's not the same thing. Now, that's a silly example, but that's sort of what Paul's saying about the gospel. Look, I know you go to the peanut butter aisle, and they got all kinds of peanut butter, but there's really only one thing you're looking for. All the rest of it is just cheap imitation knockoff stuff. It's not the same. It's no good. Paul says, look, I know there's lots of ideas out there. I know there's lots of teachers out there. I know there's lots of people coming with lots of gospels. There's really not any other gospel, though. There's only one gospel. We're going to continue to talk about that. The next truth, number five, the false teachers were troubling the church and distorting the gospel. That's the rest of verse 7. You're turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. I just want you to understand that those two things always go together. If you distort the gospel, you bring trouble to a church. And if you trouble a church, you distort the gospel. You cannot do one without doing the other. Those things go together, pardon the stupid joke, like peanut butter and jelly. You always have them together. If somebody is troubling a church in any way, Rest assured, they are distorting the gospel through their life, through their words, through their teaching. 
through their influence. They're distorting the gospel. And if you stand up and you preach a less than true gospel or a more than true gospel, anything other than the gospel, you are troubling the church. Today, there is a greater danger about this than there was in Paul's day. Because in Paul's day, for someone to go to the churches in Galatia and preach this different gospel and trouble the church, they physically had to go there. And it wasn't all that easy to get there. There was no bullet train. There was no direct flight. There was no automobile. You had to get there. Today, you have access to people who trouble the church and distort the gospel on the little black square you carry around in your pocket. You can get online and access thousands upon thousands of people who distort the gospel. Now look, they start off saying, we love Jesus. And you are prone to think, we're prone to think, oh, well then they're on our team. We're so easily disarmed by anyone or any movie or any song or anything that makes any reference to God and we want to claim it as our own for some reason that we swallow all kinds of trash and nonsense from people who are distorting the gospel and in doing so, they are troubling the church. They don't have to be a member of Emmanuel Baptist Church to trouble this church. These false teachers are troubling the church and distorting the gospel. God hates both of those things. He hates both of those things. Through Paul, God warned the church in Corinth that if you destroy his church, God will destroy you. It's not playing around to God. He cares about his church. He cares about his church so much, he sent his only son to bleed and suffer and die for that church. He loves his church and he will protect his church and if you destroy if you trouble his church and distort the gospel the bible says god will destroy you paul pronounces a curse on anyone who preaches a new gospel verse 8 and 9 even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you let him be accursed. Listen to what he said. If I, we, Paul, Titus, Timothy, if any of us who came to you originally show up and we say something different than what we said the first time, or if an angel from heaven comes down into your church, fills the pulpit, and preaches something contrary to what you heard from us, let them be accursed. Literally, let them be damned. And if that's not a strong enough statement, he just says it again. He says, we've said it before, I'm going to say it again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. If a Muslim tries to tell you that an angel appeared to Muhammad and dictated to him the Quran, which is contrary to the gospel that Paul preached in Galatia, you just reference Galatians 1, 8, and 9. You don't need to pray about, well, do I need to think about the Quran? They said an angel gave it. No, you don't need to think about it. 
the gospel contrary to what Paul preached. Let them be accursed. If your Latter-day Saint friends say, but Joseph Smith went out and he prayed to God and the angel Moroni showed up and gave him these tablets of gold. They came from God through an angel to Joseph Smith. How can you argue with that? You say Galatians 1, 8, and 9. Let them be accursed. If an evangelical Christian says to you, I had a dream, I had a vision, God told me this or that or the other, and it's contrary to the gospel that Paul preached, you just reference Galatians 1, 8, 9. You don't need to say, oh my goodness, God told you this? Well, it must be true. An angel told you this? It must be true. You say, no, let them be accursed. Paul pronounced a curse on anyone who, who preached a new gospel. In West Texas, you might say, them's fighting words. And they are. Paul's mad. He's really, really mad. And if you think those are fighting words, you should just keep reading and find what he says later in the book. One more truth. Pleasing God requires faithfulness to the gospel. You just have to decide as an individual, as a family, as a church, who is it that we want to please? Do we want to please human beings or do we want to please God? Because you can't please both. You just got to make the decision. Who is it that we care to please? Paul says, if I'm trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Read a story about two Italian composers. One was named Rossini. It's Rossini on the left side of the screen. He was the older uh, teacher. And on the right is Verdi. And Rossini was this great Italian opera composer. He was famous and his operas were bestsellers and packed the theater houses and everyone thought he was tremendous. And Verdi was his protege. And the day came when Verdi finally had one of his operas in the Florence Opera House. It was his big debut. It would be like a Broadway debut or a, a major motion picture debut or the first time you got to play a sold-out concert in Las Vegas. It was a really big deal. There were thousands of people in the Florence Opera House. Verdi, throughout the whole performance, had his eyes fixed on one person. It was no one in the crowd. It was Rossini. All he cared about is, what does my teacher think? What does my mentor think? Is he pleased? Is he disappointed? I don't care what the critics say. I don't care what the reviews are. I don't care if they applaud, if they ask for an encore. I don't care about any of that. What does the master think? That ought to be the mentality of every church. Not what does the community think? What does the world think? What does this political party or that political party think? But what does the Lord Jesus Christ think about what we sing? What does he think about what we preach? What does he think about who we are and how we live in community with each other? What does he think about our efforts to take the gospel to the nations? What does the Lord think? Pleasing God requires faithfulness to the gospel. Okay, two lessons. We'll wrap up. Very simple. The first lesson is the gospel is... The gospel. There's only one. There's not gospels, plural. There is only one gospel. People say that's narrow. 
People say that's egotistical. People say, how dare you claim a monopoly on the truth? How dare you claim a monopoly on religion? How dare you just cast out all of these other ideas and worldviews and beliefs and throw them to the dung heap? Postmodernism is a cancer that has affected and infected and infested every nook and cranny of our society. It's just part of the air we breathe and we don't even realize it most of the time. And it's rooted in the idea that there is no one who can claim to have absolute truth. All you can do is claim some truth, your truth, and the only reason you claim it is to exercise authority or to oppress somebody else. And you're not allowed to do that. That's not right. That's not politically correct. That's not tolerable. So you can't make any claim to absolute truth. But what Paul's saying here is the gospel is the gospel. And you and I live in a culture that is just beginning to deal with the consequences of postmodernism. We're on the very tip of the iceberg of what it looks like for a culture to embrace the idea that truth is completely relative and no one can have any definitive say about anything. It is a recipe, a cocktail for societal, moral, civil, family collapse. And we're at the very beginning of it. We ought to pray that God would turn our nation in a new direction and that God in His grace and His mercy might spare us from the consequences of our folly. The gospel is the gospel. It is the faith once for all time delivered to the saints. Anything else is a cheap knockoff. It's the one standard. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Faithfulness to the gospel is the one standard by which you ought to judge a preacher, a Sunday school teacher, a church. Not do they believe in God, not do they say they love Jesus, but faithfulness to the gospel. Do they have an understanding that the one true God is holy, holy, holy? The creator of everything that exists eternally, he is Father, Son, and Spirit. They start with God. Do they... Talk about sin like the Bible talks about sin. Are they willing to say human beings are completely depraved, totally depraved? Every part of who we are is infected by sin and we're rendered helpless when it comes to salvation. Do they point to the Lord Jesus as the one who accomplished everything that needed to be accomplished for sinners to be saved? In his life, in his death, in his resurrection, and in his ascension, in his mediation in heaven. And do they call sinners to repent of their sin and to put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Are they faithful to the gospel? Popularity is not the metric we use. Social media presence is not the metric we use. We talked a few weeks ago. Buildings, budgets, and bodies, not the metric we use. Let the world have all of that pragmatic nonsense, all of that celebrity culture, and just boil it down to the question, are they faithful to the gospel? That salvation is by grace 
alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. The gospel is the gospel. Secondly, in a similar thought, the gospel never changes. The gospel never changes. It doesn't matter how enlightened we become as a culture. It doesn't matter the new discoveries astrologists make or archaeologists pull out of the ground. The gospel never changes. It has been once for all delivered to the saints. Paul acknowledges in this passage sort of indirectly what he directly acknowledges elsewhere, and that is that natural human beings, natural man, lost people, unbelievers, don't like the gospel. They don't like it. They don't want to hear it. They don't want anything to do with it. And he talks about that in verse 10 where he says, look, am I trying to please men or am I trying to please God? Because if I'm trying to please men, I would just preach like the super apostles in Corinth or like the Judaizers in Galatia. There's other gospels I could preach that people would like and they would want to hear. But I'm not trying to please men, I'm trying to please God, so I'm just going to preach something that is offensive to people. Look, it's offensive to say to people that there is a God in heaven who created everything, who has authority over everyone, including you. People don't want to hear that when they're lost. People don't want to hear that they're sinners. Now, they'll admit to you, I'm not perfect. But when you begin to talk about people being dead in trespasses and sins, being children of wrath, being separated from God so that God doesn't hear or see, people don't want to hear that. People don't want to hear that the Lord Jesus accomplished everything that needed to be accomplished. They want to think that they contribute something to salvation. What do you mean the Lord Jesus Christ did all of it? What's my role? What do I contribute? I have talents, abilities, capabilities, influence, money. You don't contribute anything. We talked a few weeks ago. All you contribute is the sin that makes your salvation necessary. That's your contribution. People don't want to hear that. People don't want to hear that there is only one way of salvation. What do you mean? I can't choose my own way. What do you mean I can't be genuine and sincere in this religious belief and not be saved? What do you mean that Jesus is the way, the truth, and life? What do you mean that there's no other name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved? What do you mean that there's only one mediator between God and, and men? People don't want to hear that. People don't want to hear. You're about to get through Galatians and get to Ephesians 1. People don't want to hear that before the foundation of the world, God had a plan to save sinners. They don't want to hear that. There's lots of things about the gospel that offends lost people. It is what they need, but it is not what they want until God calls them effectually and changes their heart. We can issue an external call. We cannot change hearts. Only God can change hearts. It's what they need, even though it's not what they want. And at some point, our society just has to reckon with the fact that not liking something doesn't change it. You know, I had to fill out forms for my kids for school recent weeks. And there's a question on there about when I was born. And I feel like not that long ago, I had to just click that drop-down thing and there was my birthday. 
And now, I mean, I don't feel like I'm ancient, but I feel like I'm scrolling a long way down to get to, where's 82? How far down do I have to go to 82? Some of you are like, 82? I'm going way past 82. 82 is way in the rearview mirror. It doesn't change it, does it? My wife and I have been talking recently. We don't like the number that the scale says when we step on it in the morning. I don't like it. Step on it in the morning, same number. Might have something to do with that cookie I ate today. I don't know. Crumble cookie keeps showing up in the office. If y'all are bringing crumble cookie, stop it. I don't know who's doing that. You might get a bank statement or maybe you're on my side of 82 and you don't get a bank statement. You look at it on your phone and you open up the app or you open up the envelope or whatever you open up and you say, I don't like those numbers. Those aren't the numbers I want to see. Does it change it? Doesn't change it one bit. You might go to the doctor and the doctor might say, this is what your blood pressure is. Here's your cholesterol number. And you can say, Doc, I don't like those numbers. They're the numbers. Doesn't change it. People hear the the good news of Jesus Christ, and for many different reasons, they say, well, I don't like that. I, I don't want that. Well, the Bible recognizes that people don't like it, and the Bible recognizes that people don't want it. But it doesn't change what it is. It doesn't change the fact that God is holy. It doesn't change the fact that we're depraved sinners. It doesn't change the fact that Jesus had to die to save us. It doesn't change the fact that God has had a plan from before the foundation of the world to save a people for himself. It doesn't change the fact that only God can change a sinner's heart. It doesn't change the fact that you are called to repent of your sin and believe in the Lord Jesus. And it doesn't change the fact that he's the only way that a person can be saved. Someone not liking those things doesn't change any of it. The gospel is the gospel. And the gospel never changes. Have you believed it? Are you resting in it? Are you thanking God for it? And as we have sung multiple times tonight, are you actually telling it to anybody? say, well, they don't want to hear it. I know they don't want to hear it. Paul knew they didn't want to hear it. Somebody not wanting to hear it doesn't change the fact that it's true, and it doesn't change the fact that it's what they need to hear. Our job is to issue this external call, to call people to respond to the truth about God and sin and Jesus and salvation, and then to trust God to issue the internal call to change hearts and to draw people to himself that they might be saved. That's the gospel. Let's pray.